2: Hi, I'm Freddie. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about what the air-rated concrete scandal says about modern Britain. Hello, I'm Freddie Hayward, political correspondent at the New Statesman. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor, and Andrew Marr, Political Editor. Rachel, the government's start of the political terms completely overshadowed by this rack scandal. What's been going on?
0: Yes, we've all learnt uh, this new acronym, RAC, which stands for Reinforced Autoclaved Aerated Concrete. Can you tell that I practised that? I think that's very good. Um, Which uh, looks a bit like the consistency of one of those aero chocolate bars. Uh, And it was a, a cheaper form of concrete that was used in the construction of lots and lots of buildings from the sort of 60s onwards, but in particular schools we 've known basically since these buildings were put up that it has a, a safety shelf life of about thirty years obviously we 're well 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 past that um, and yet uh, it seems nothing was done to to make these buildings safe to the point that just before the the start of the new school term. Uh, 150 schools were told actually you can't you can't open it's not it's not safe or you're going to have to get builders in or, or reinforce in some ways um, and so we've all become experts in the concrete industry but it really you could not find a more perfect mm. political analogy for the, the state of the country after 13 years of conservative government because this is an issue it didn't come out of nowhere it's not like they were struck by lightning this was known about there was money meant to be allocated in, in various budgets over the last uh, 20 years to do these repairs. They were put off. The funding wasn't there. Various education secretaries made the decision, or actually various education secretaries asked for money from the Treasury and, and didn't get it or got far less money to repair these schools. And now we're in a situation where thousands of children are having to learn in temporary classrooms or learn remotely because the ceiling might fall down on their heads.
2: Yeah, um, Andrew, I mean, this is a broader problem, isn't it? It's been going on for a very long time. It goes back to the post-war era when we had this uh, big building boom and people were looking for cheaper materials. I mean, who's responsible here?
1: Who's responsible is, of course, the crucial political question. And Labour did quite a good job this week in saying it's that Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, he cut back uh, building repair programmes. But I think if you go back through the record then, of course, you can find a Labour responsibility way back. But in recent years, it has been a series of Conservatives, and really because of the austerity years, not taking the big investment decisions. I vividly remember, I think in 2016, interviewing Michael Gove And I said, what was your biggest political mistake? And he said, by far, my biggest political mistake was cancelling the the new building programme for schools, uh, 56 billion pound programme. So he said that in 2016, 2016, which they'd inherited from the Brown government. And I think he cancelled about 2012, 2014, early on uh, during the austerity years. And he said that was his biggest mistake. They knew they were. I think the bigger political issue here is that it's a perfect example of what happens when you've got a government sitting on top of an economy, which is simply not big enough to give the British people the kind of standards and the services that we have come to think we deserve. And so I can entirely understand why these decisions were put off, because every government uh, with tight spending constraints has pressures from the newspapers and from everywhere else for, you know, this spending settlement or that absolutely glaring injustice, which has to be resolved now. And when you look at something like rack concrete, where nobody has died, and you're looking at something which may become a problem later on, maybe for a future Labour government, who knows, you can exactly understand why it's put off and put off and put off. But it is a perfect example of the Conservatives' failure to invest long term in the economy.
2: And, Andrew, mm-hmm. let me see you An optimist, and your cover story this week is extremely pessimistic, I would say. I mean, one of the arguments that you make towards the end is that the crisis that's currently engulfing the country requires extremely decisive, strict leadership. I mean, could you flesh that out
1: for us a little bit? So, first of all, there are big um, domestic problems to be faced, which are going to be very difficult and unpopular. Peter Foster of the Financial Times wrote a really interesting book about Brexit, which I read over the summer, which itemizes in granular detail the collapse of SME companies' optimism for the future as they find the the trading uh, problems with the EU getting worse and worse and worse. And he makes a really compelling argument that at some point in the first term, Labour are going to have to radically rethink our attitudes and our relationship with the EU. We're not going to go back. We're not going to have another referendum. But I think, inescapably, we are going to become a country of rule-takers. That is economically essential now. It's going to be really unpopular. And one way or another, Labour are going to have to grapple with that. Mm-hmm. Second problem, um, uh, Harry Lambert, our colleague, wrote a very, very strong piece, cover piece for the, for the New Statesman, about the fact that QE quantitative easing brought in by the Bank of England had created a vast asset bubble, and that that changed the argument about the balance between wealth taxes and income taxes. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Making that shift is going to be very, very unpopular. There are 60 seats or so in London alone, which will be badly affected by a wealth tax. I think it's the kind of thing that Labour are going to have to do. And therefore, there's Just two examples of big, difficult decisions that Labour are going to have to take. Their biggest problem is going to be how they start to rebuild a country without the money to do it. Their second biggest problem is how they're going to get the growth, which takes us back to looking again at Europe. So big problems there. Mm. And if you go beyond that, if you can look at the wider world, I see no reason why we should not expect Donald Trump to be back in the presidency next year. I don't see at the moment who's going to beat him among the Republican candidates, um, and he seems to be marching through those uh, legal problems, those, those prosecutions, like, as I said, Godzilla in the movie, marching through, chomping his way through uh, Japanese fishing villages. Now, maybe Joe Biden will see him off. But looking at Joe Biden at the moment, he doesn't look like a man who's going to see anybody off in the short term or the long term. There won't, well, there won't be a long term for Joe Biden, but you know what I mean. And so I think we have to assume that the the prospect of a Trump presidency is a real sure. one. That means two things, clearly. It means, first of all, that America is going to tear itself apart and that, that very, very long era we have all lived through, where America was the kind of backstop for Western security, the, the place we kind of plugged ourselves into, that is going to end. I think America is going to be in a really big uh, political crisis. But in the shorter term, still, it means that Ukraine will, will lose that war because Trump will pull the plug. He will do a deal on Russian terms, and that means the entire Western security apparatus, the entire European security apparatus becomes very, very dangerous-looking indeed. I spoke to Sir Richard Dearlove this week, who's the former head of MI6, and I said, given all of that, are we properly defended in this country? He said, absolutely not. We have a really major turn towards defence spending. he said well you know well a couple of minutes to midnight in my view was the phrase he used if you take all of that take it all together then what we cannot have next is a kind of hung parliament or a minority government yeah. unable to take hard decisions so this column is really it is very pessimistic you're right but it's really making the case for a strong and decisive election result a leader therefore who can take the tough decisions uh, unafraid by lobbies and worried about press criticism and all of that.
2: Yeah, and also a party that's comfortable yeah. radically changing the country. I mean, one thing that's stuck out to me in the past few weeks is how reticent Labour is to criticize austerity for the current crisis in uh, schools and um, national infrastructure. They're sort of focusing on Rishi Sunak understandably and they're focusing on uh, the past few years rather than looking back at the chronic underfunding of uh, national infrastructure within this country. I mean, Rachel, why do you think that is? I mean, It seems that uh, as soon as Labour becomes obsessed with fiscal conservatism, as they have done in the past six months, they lose the ability to attack the government for their full 13 year record.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They They seem very so terrified of their past reputation as vote a Labour government in, they won't be able to balance the books, they'll get the big checkbook out, spending splurge, you can't trust them. Um, They've noticed that they are leading on the economy, as Ben Walker, our data expert, has has mentioned several times, that is sort of the key to winning an election when the economy is a key issue. Um, And they're just terrified of losing that lead. So what you're getting from Starmer and, and Rachel Reeves is, we'll sort of be the Conservatives, but we'll be more competent. And at the moment, that's been working for them because the Conservatives just keep looking incompetent. I mean, this was meant to be Rishi Sunak's week to talk about economic recovery and how the growth figures were better than expected and how his plan was working. And what have we been talking about all week? Crumbling school buildings and dodgy concrete. So the the, the Labour strategy has been working. But at some point, there are going to be questions asked about if you have the exact same Fiscal policies, pretty much, as the Conservatives and the Conservatives' fiscal policies have left us with such chronic underinvestment. Kind of, what's the point of you? How are you going to to fix these things? And we're talking about schools this week, but the the, the concrete hmm. issue extends way into the public realm. We've got um, court buildings, prisons, hospitals. I mean, if you if you think about the. Uh, Political hit of having to close schools. Imagine if you have to evacuate hospitals because the hospital roofs are, are falling down. There is also possibly this concrete in the houses of Parliament itself, which I think is a again a lovely a lovely metaphor. Um, but it's a it's a very emotive, almost visceral example of how this underinvestment and lack of long term or even medium term planning yeah. has impacted. Every area of the public realm.
2: After the break, sticking plaster politics and the risk of cautious centrism. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it both on iOS and Android. Just search for the New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: there seems to be a slight disconnect between Starmer's strange phrase sticking plaster politics which I've never heard before he's the only person I've ever heard use that phrase but that's his slogan for this short term policy making yeah. and then also their short term
1: fiscal rules there's a disconnect there isn't there Andrew? There certainly is let's be absolutely honest about this we are all hoping that they're saying one thing before the election yeah. and we'll do something slightly different afterwards because we all know we look at the numbers and we look at the taxation take and we look at the strategy and we know that they they are going to have to do radical things if they're going to be a successful government that they are not talking about now for electoral reasons. So, in a sense, we are all complicit in a certain dishonesty in British politics. Well, call right. out, Andrew, if you want to. Oh, I, just, I, think I, I think I just have. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, we are, we are complicit. We, we think yeah. that they're going to do more than they say they're going to do now. And if they don't do more than they say they're going to do now, I think they're going to run into terrible problems with growth in particular. I just don't see how we're going to be able to grow the economy without a much better trading relationship with the trading block next door. And I don't see how we're going to have a more uh, a fairer uh, economy in which ordinary working families feel that they are being treated properly unless we look again at the tax system. Mm. And, you know, then there's all the other issues like the vast number of jobs which are going to be taken out quite soon by AI. I hope people inside the Labour Party are thinking about this and, and, and where those where those people are going to work and how they're going to deal with the, the political and the economic fallout. I kind of slightly doubt it, but I really hope they are. I just think when they come in and they see this storm of problems coming ahead yeah. of them, they're going to have to be much tougher and more radical than they, they're talking about at the moment. I mean, we, we spoke about this a few weeks
2: ago, but is there a risk, Andrew, do you think that because our political uh, discourse is so focused on the elections and parties are so embedded within the electoral cycle that we don't have enough scrutiny and debate about what they're actually going to do once they get into office.
1: Absolutely. Completely agree with that. Um, we have a kind of slightly tepid, you know, watery middle of the road political discourse at the moment. And I've been part of it, I'm sure, over the past year or two, where I've my basic assumption has been the grown ups have taken over the Conservative Party again. You know, the loons are out and we've got sort of serious minded, slightly centrist people coming back. And if they are kicked out, that's fine, because we've got quite centrist, quite similar kind of people coming into the Labour Party. And I just just think we are going to go through a period of economic and political turbulence in which that kind of cautious centrism won't wash.
2: Yeah, and also this cautious centrism has got us in the problem in the first place. If we go back to the austerity years and the sensible government of David Cameron, the slick uh, balance the books uh, rhetoric that we had then. I mean, we're seeing some of the effects of the false economy of austerity now. The whole point of austerity was to save money, but if you don't invest and
1: you don't keep things ticking over, then in the long term it costs more. If the Conservatives do go down to a big election defeat next year. It's going to be a defeat for Rishi Sunak a bit. It's going to be a defeat for Liz Truss quite a lot. It's going to be a defeat for Boris Johnson quite a lot. But above all, it's going to be a defeat for George Osborne. Thanks so
2: much for listening. You can read more from our crumbling Britain series in the link in the show notes and find Andrew's cover story on newsstands this week. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Freddie Hayward, and my colleagues, Andrew Marr and Rachel Cunliffe. We'll be back on Monday with Harry Lambert to discuss Britain's Tax Delusion. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.